In this episode, I talk about five things that humans do to keep each other stuck. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist who is obsessed with the polyvagal theory. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken. This is a follow-up to last week's episode, which was called Five Things Humans Do to Keep Themselves Stuck. And again, I'm on justinlmft.com in the blog. I have an article on this as well, but I thought I'd bring it to you here at the podcast. And one or two disclaimers here. This is not therapy. This is not intended to be therapy. This is not intended to replace therapy or your potential to look for a therapist. Please do so if you need to. And you do know yourself best, so put yourself first. This episode might be a little challenging. I'm going to leave that up to you to know what your line is. But again, we're talking about five things humans do to keep each other stuck. And number one is encouraging or demanding secrets. This is the inverse of last week's, which is keeping secrets. But what we do to each other is we encourage or demand secrets. We need to feel safe in coming forward uh, with something that we've survived or maybe just some feelings that we have that we want to discuss. We need to feel safe in coming forward with those, right? We need to feel like we can safely connect with another person or maybe even a pet if you want to connect with a pet. And the other person that we come to is ideally they're able to stay in their own ventral vagal state of safety and ideally able to provide some co-regulation and ideally, again, able, maybe they're able to even mobilize, access their sympathetic energy while staying safe to help the individual to get help that needs it. Both of these can help to keep a predator's victim from developing or remaining in a traumatized state. So sadly, when maybe a parent is in their own stuck defensive state, their ability, their capacity to provide these things that are necessary, that are necessary like being in a safe and social state, mobilizing to get help, if that parent is in their own stuck defensive state, their capacity to provide those things might be hampered, it might be lessened, to say the least. And I actually have an episode about parenting and what parents were capable of, whether or not they could do better. And there's a blog and a podcast. I'll put links in the description to those. So that parent or whatever adult that maybe a child goes to, that parent or adult, they might actually encourage their child to keep it a secret rather than providing safety for that child, rather than co-regulating, rather than mobilizing to get them help they actually might encourage that child to keep it a secret. And this isn't just for parents and children. It obviously has other applications as well, but that's kind of an obvious one. Or that parent might actually be the predator themselves. And again, encouraging secrecy. Either way, uh, secrecy is encouraged here by that parent in this example. Encouraging that child to be open about the danger in their life is discouraged. Not just in their life, because there's potentially a danger to the rest of the family as well. But that person is encouraging secrecy. And so therefore the child remains stuck. They don't seek help. They don't get help. They don't even, maybe don't even get co-regulation to help them at least get back to the safe and social state at least. No, instead secrecy, secrecy is encouraged. And secrecy in this example could actually act as a, uh, as a mechanism to keep that family system the way it is or to keep that predator in their uh, powerful position. On a more general level, I don't, I don't think we really encourage openness and honesty. We tend to shame each other, don't we? We shame each other for how we feel. Or we're instead encouraged to be strong or 
get over it, whatever those mean, quote unquote, be strong, quote unquote, get over it. But all this does is to encourage silence about things that need to be spoken about. So maybe, maybe the secrets aren't encouraged like a, by a specific other person, like, a, like an abuser. And maybe the secret is more of a cultural expectation, a social one, or a familial expectation. Number two is isolation slash rejection. So not only do we self-isolate, which we talked about last week, but we also isolate each other. And maybe rejection might be a better word here, but isolate I, that seems to work for a more uh, complete picture, especially when compared to last week's uh, episode. We cut other people from our lives when we can't handle their defensive energy. We isolate, we reject them. And part of the isolation slash rejection process is to mentally construct that stuck individual with labels or with judgments. We label them as part of the isolation process. So that family member that comes forward and discloses maybe a long-held secret of abuse, uh, they can actually be rejected by the rest of the family. That individual that came forward might be labeled as a liar or, or maybe they're questioned about their motivations for coming forward. They're, they're labeled, they're otherized, right? They're questioned. This serves to reject the person, isolates them, that's coming forward. And that person may actually have knowledge that the rest of the family probably should have as a safety issue. But when the family does this, when the family isolates or rejects that individual, the family system continues on. So the isolation and rejection actually serves a function for the larger, for maintaining the larger family system, even though it might be a very unhealthy one. Nothing has to change in this situation. Nothing has to change. No one, and of course, things probably should change, but no one has to change now. So isolation serves the larger function of ensuring of maintaining the family system, of ensuring that no other family members have to make any changes or feel the discomfort that would come along with facing some very difficult truths, maybe. The other family members, they, they don't have to confront their role in the family system that maybe, ha- maybe enabled whatever it is that, that happened, right? They don't have to confront the abuser. The family system in this example that's isolating or rejecting, they're going to remain in this perpetual state of unhealthy dynamics. And they will continue to actively isolate or label or reject that individual that is disrupting the family system, even though it it needs to happen. So does something like this happen on a larger scale, a larger social level? Yeah, of course. Um, There's Lots of active otherizing and demonizing and blaming and questioning and isolation or rejection of entire groups of people. We see this throughout history, across the entire globe. I think human beings globally and across time are guilty of this. No matter creed or color or beliefs or whatever. It's unfortunately a very human thing that we do is isolate and reject and otherize and demonize all all that stuff. I think it's extremely active today in in cancel culture as much as it is for uh, fundamental religious institutions. It's essential that some group is otherized or rejected. That otherizing and rejecting is absolutely essential to the functioning of some other group. 
it's it's essential to the emotional functioning of whoever else it is that's doing it or at least it's at least essential to the current emotional functioning as things already stand so cancel culture today or fundamental religious institutions today it is essential to their current present day emotional functioning to otherize and label and demonize and isolate and reject some other group of people. And it's maybe even especially important to the powerful within these groups, so the leaders or the blue check marks within these groups, to retain their status, their power, to actively isolate and reject some other group of people. Number three is codependency. And this one uh, really goes hand in hand with last week's with the behavioral adaptations that I laid out. Behavioral adaptations can potentially come with a very close sibling called codependency. We know that behavioral adaptations on their own, they have the purpose of alleviating that stuck individual from the pain, temporarily at least, from the pain of their defensive energy. And we know that these behavioral adaptations can be something as minor as clicking a pen, but they can also be something as severe as cutting or substance use. And I think that with the more severe behavioral adaptations that we see, for those behavioral adaptations to function and and to continue, they actually might require and even rely on the active participation of other people. Like when a friend or a parent gives someone who's um, an, an addict, gives them money or a place to stay or a place to shower. These seem like very good-natured, helpful things to do. And they probably come from that energy. But these behaviors, although well-intentioned, also act and, and actually reinforce the behavioral adaptation of substance use which reinforces that person's stuck defensive state. So that addict does not get any closer to getting unstuck. I think that even with these codependent behaviors, that these might be that codependent person's alleviation of their own stuck defensive energy. The codependent behavior could arguably be that codependent's own specific type of behavioral adaptation. Rather than working on getting unstuck themselves, they focus on the pains of another. If they're okay, then I'm okay. They focus on the other person versus themselves. Focusing on the other person might be an alleviation to their own stuck defensive energy. On a large level, do we engage in things that are codependent? Yeah, I think so. I think in a lot of public schools, we can see these uh, kind of codependent flavored uh, choices, policy choices that are being made. I, I love hearing from staff that have worked in, uh, in schools for decades, especially public schools that have worked there for decades, because they see this transition happening over time. And if, if you ever have a chance to listen to someone who's worked for a public school for decades, listen, because they, they'll, they have lots of insight into how things change over time. And one of the things they'll, sh- they'll share with you is that there is a consistent lowering of expectations, a consistent decreasing of the standards of ac- academic success and, and even of behavior as well. Teachers today might be flat out told to not fail students, even if they've earned that F. 
as an individual student does worse, they actually might be put into something called a continuation school, which is a kind of a good thing, but the expectations are a lot lower. The school days might be shortened. They get less homework. They do more computerized work. And the general expectations of timeliness and work completion are lower. I've heard from staff people, or actually I've seen, but also heard from them, that they are so desperate just to get kids to come into school. They are basically begging them, like, please just show up and I'll pass you. Like, they're desperate to get something, some sort of positivity or some iota of, of hope or of change that uh, standards are just consistently lowered. And what's sad is that they are consistently lowered for people that really need lots of, I think, high standards, more encouragement, more discipline, with love. So rather than holding everyone to the same expected outcomes, the bar is just consistently lowered. And some of this, yeah, it might be to get funding. Some of it might be to prevent possible legal attacks. I know in California, that is a constant anxiety for uh, public school and maybe just school in general, staff. So legal attacks, all these things may have something to do with it. And they don't exactly, none of these things exactly cause the poor, poorer academic outcomes and behavior, but they definitely reinforce them. And I think you could argue it actually worsens them. And am I describing all public schools? No, of course not. Of course not. Number four, minimizing and other bullshit. People tend to minimize the severity of things, right? Even when we're talking about traumatic events or potentially traumatic events. We minimize, we rationalize, we excuse and other bullshit. We say things like, it's not that big of a deal. Or, you'll get over it. Or um, sometimes it's just, it's just best to put these things behind us. Or, okay, okay, but, but just don't make a big deal out of it. So when we minimize and do these other BS things, it, it reinforces that stuck defensive energy of the person that is seeking help. It tells that person that their pain is, is not really that big of a deal. And it's really kind of this, almost this direct denial of the severity of that person's stuck state or of what they went through. So even if they managed to come forward and ask for help, if they were able to climb their ladder enough to utilize their sympathetic energy to come get help, being told these other, these minimizing and other bullshit things is simply just reinforcing. It's going to send them right back down the ladder. They're going to stuff it all down again. And now they might actually attach that minimization with their impulse to find safety. They might adopt that mindset. They might adopt that minimization coping strategy, which I think it is, and may have some usefulness temporarily, but long-term is not super helpful. But they might use that cognitive coping strategy of minimizing and, and other BS to continually minimize or rationalize or just otherwise dismiss the severity of their own pain. This could easily become something that they begin to rely on and even pass on to their own kids. And this, this kind of mindset can be passed on for generations. I know for my clients, when they look back on these types of cognitive coping strategies, they can see that, yeah, my parents did this. And, oh, yeah, my grandparents did this as well. Or my parents told me about how my grandparents did this, these type of things. It's passed on generation after generation. 
And number five, we're strangers to ourselves. These polyvagal state shifts that you know we spend so much time talking about, these, these have no inherent value. They are simply the bodily organism's way of increasing the chances of survival. That's it. And by increasing chances of survival, the body is then increasing the chances of reproducing you know, that specific strand of genetic material for another generation. That's really, there's no value to it. That's really it. There's no judgment. There's no value assigned to this. It's simply the mechanisms of evolution. And the body going up and down, the autonomic nervous system shifting up and down is simply a part of the process of survival. So despite this simple truth, humans, we seem to have lost the capacity to be with these bodily sensations. We are a stranger to ourselves. It's something that we need to learn and to practice. We, animals don't really need to do this. They're, they're already at one with their bodies. They don't have our, the same conscious mind that we do, right? So we have to relearn these things and then practice them. Human beings, it's us that we do all the, the other four things that I've listed and a lot more. We strive to live lives that are free from actually being with these political states. We focus on what we do or do not have. We focus on what others are or are not doing. We focus on what we think needs to change in society, and then we evangelize in the comment sections of our social media. We seek incessant, incessant entertainment or distraction from what's happening within. We've become absolutely fixated on the external and complete strangers to what's happening within us. So when these shifts do happen, these political shifts do happen, we have no idea what the hell's going on. We don't know how to tolerate it. Our vagal breaks are not developed enough to be able to handle it and to allow these shifts to happen. Having a weaker vagal break is a consequence of having an underdeveloped social engagement system. The, the vagal break is the influence of the social engagement system on the heart. So an underdeveloped social engagement system leads to a weaker or is a weaker vagal break. These biological pathways are not exercised enough. And instead, we're probably utilizing defensive pathways um, too much. And for things that are probably not really necessary for defense. We overuse these from numerous different sources such as outright traumatic events or potentially traumatic events that are in our lives. We also overuse defensive pathways from constant fear-mongering from media and outright oppression from one group to another and also advertising that stokes our fears in order to uh, compel some sort of uh, purchasing behavior and a lot more, a lot more. So then we live in a state or states of defense. We're constantly scrutinizing ourselves and each other. We're judging, we're labeling, we're otherizing, we're manipulating. All of this to fulfill some sort of selfish impulse to feel dominant or to feel satiated or powerful maybe. But not powerful like self-empowered, more like powerful like, yeah, more like dominant. And then we have others that live in a defensive state that are more in a shutdown, disconnected place and feeling very helpless to themselves and the world around them. And so we're left with being strangers to ourselves. And I mean to ourselves on a personal level, but also to ourselves on an interpersonal level. We can't handle that personal stuff inside and we 
definitely can't handle the interpersonal stuff outside. It all becomes alien to us. But really, it's just biology. It's just our internal stuff. And that internal stuff is trying its damnedest to self-regulate and optimize our bodily resources. That's it. It's just biology. This biology, it's the cues of safety or danger that we give off and that we give to each other. It's not that complex to understand. You, you get it by now, right? And if you don't listen to episodes one through nine, you'll, you'll get a, a crash course in all of it. Or especially episodes one through four, but I would say episodes one through nine are, are core to all this. So we can learn, we can learn what's happening and we can learn what to do about it as well. But we have a very hard time with executing. I'll leave it at that. Um, but I, I also do want to tell you about how to increase the strength of your own Viggle break. And I've got a course that's called Building Safety Anchors that is designed to do just that. It's 30 days of learning and 30 days of doing in small steps, small doses. And it will help you to recognize what's happening within you, specifically the feelings of safety and of peace that are within you. You might have a hard time tapping into it and feeling it, but they are within you. These feelings are only unlocked once your safety pathways are accessed. So that might be why you have a hard time feeling them is because your safety pathways are not being activated. And my course will help you to, to do so. And there's six different learning modules that I, I lead you through and then guide you through on how to discover well, what, what works for me in these um, six different learning modules. What works for me and things like, or things around music and the environment uh, your body, sensory things, uh, memory, and even cognitions. If you want to know more about the course, there's there's a link in the description. Or feel free to email me as well, justinlmft at gmail.com. I hope you liked this episode. I hope you got something out of it. Thank you so much for listening.